and rightfully so, I think. Uh, I want to make a case for it, nonetheless. And yeah, Johan is possible making a radical critique without being anti Semitic, anti Zionist, and so on. Um, I think uh, this, this radical critique of capitalism is already necessary to understand capitalism, as this is the environment of capitalism through. And it's necessary if you want to fight anti Semitism to talk about these very structures that make it possible. All right. Um, um, in this paper, I have a theory part in the beginning, and the second part is going to be a case study of an Austrian newspaper uh, dealing with the economic crisis and anti Semitic stereotypes in the beginning. Um, um, this critique of capitalism can, of course, be dangerous as well as we've seen yesterday. Yeah? My point is that it has to be radical. Really crucial word it is. And they're going to the Latin root of radical, radix meaning root, in social, particular, social science meaning going to the roots of a problem and, and go to the fundamentals and talk about this. So there is, of course, it can be problematic. And Adorno, Theodore Adorno, Frankfurt School's co saw this problem. It's a quote Not anything that tends towards extremes in whatever dimension can be considered radical but only what attacks the negative situation at the root in an inconsiderate critique of the status quo. So that's the important thing between this extreme and radical, to make this point that radical is a necessary thing. And we get to, to the problematic side of this later. Because if you don't do it, it leads to a superficial analysis of capitalistic system and you're not able to get to the ideological undergrowth and get to the real root of the problem. All right. Um, there's always been a strong affinity between anti-Semitism and anti-capitalism throughout history. From Shiloh, the usurer, to court uh, shoes and Baron Rothschild, and the East Coast bankers of nowadays. There's always been this connection. And the Jews have always been made responsible for the burdens of a proto-capitalistic society in European history. Um, it is necessary to understand anti-Semitism, of course, as a problem of the anti-Semites, and not of Problem and it's not affected by Jews or how they do, what they do and what they don't do, and not by the state of Israel is doing and is not doing. It's an inner conflict um, in the within the anti-Semitic individual, but not a reaction to real empirical uh, outer world experience. So it's very necess it's necessary to understand the whole phenomenon. Um, there are uh, inner conflicts that are then projected onto the Jews. That's what makes the core of anti-Semitism. Um, Anti-Semitism uh, um, anti has to be understood within this framework of capitalistic uh, society, I think. Adorno and Horkheimer in their dialectic of enlightenment made this case in the third thesis, uh, in their anti-Semitism thesis. They say, um, quote, bourgeois anti-Semitism has a specific economic cause, concealment of domination in production. So this concealment in production is very important as anti-Semites usually only uh, see the circulation sphere, which is the visible part of this whole capitalistic uh, mode of production. Um, so they can blame the Jews for these structures they are able to understand, blame it on the visible agents of this system. Uh, it's kind of a conformist rebellion against the capitalistic system. And conformist rebellion is a term that Klaus and Adorno named it an authoritarian rebellion, which means, of course, it's kind of a rebellion. It helps to, to get rid of preventive drives, but it's not touching the system as a whole. It's not, in fact, a radical critique or something. It's just a very superficial one. Um, um, 
Nevertheless, as we understood, it's not just the subjective problems of the anti-Semites, but there are objective reasons for anti-Semitism. Um, terms of fetish corrective ideology that Marx used to describe capitalist society, uh, and much of the stone, uh, professor of history at the University of Chicago, made it useful then to understand anti-Semitism. Gustav's um, understanding is a bit of further development of what goes on in Horkheim and Sunset and in one part, basically. And he said that no, the circulation theory, but the whole abstract side of the capitalist system is the problem of anti Semitism. So I um, quote here The abstract domination of capital, which caught people up in a web of dynamic forces they could not understand, became perceived as the domination of international Jewry. So it's the whole conspiratorial thing again uh, behind modern anti-Semitism, uh, as much of the put it. And then you can see a connection to capitalistic society very well, this abstract side, so not touchable. Um, so um, this means that uh, in well, anti-Semitism is a fetishized understanding of capitalism. And fetishized in the sense um, that the abstract fundaments of capitalistic organization, concealment and production, so don't put it, uh, are weighed, and what is left are only the concrete forms, for example, labor and the essential forms of the commodity. Um, this uh, abstract side is then projected onto the Jews and fought against the Jews and makes it an anti capitalistic struggle as well. Um, uh, because when he says, when you see the characteristics that usually contributed to choose in modern anti-Semitism, things like abstractness, intangibility, universality, and mobility, these are all um, also characteristics of the abstract side of the capitalistic uh, system. So they quote, again, quote, Moreover, this dimension, like the supposed power of the Jews, does not appear as such, but always in the form of material carrier, such as the commodity. Of course, again, an analogy from Marx and said that the exchange value needs a carrier, which is then um, What happens then is that uh, if in this feature, I understanding is that you can romanticize traditional labor and then hit it, uh, pay out against other forms of labor, for example, a money owner who earns money from something, he doesn't have to work with the landowner, doesn't have to work with, make a split and ontologize and uh, and naturalized is one side, labor, for example, and the, the abstract sides can be fought against. And this is what happened, for example, when we talk about financial capital, the evil capital, um, who's destroying everything and going from place to place, and to, as well. And the other thing is the biologization of capitalism, that societies and social structures are uh, biologized and, and then uh, they look some kind of natural. And uh, this is very important again to quote. The manifest abstract dimension is also biologized as the Jews. Modern anti Semitism involves the biologization of capitalism, which itself is only understood in terms of its manifest abstract dimension as international Jewry. Okay, we'll get back to this in the case study. And we're just going to start right now, so it's just the theoretical part of the case study. Um, I'm going to talk about a newspaper that's called the Aula. It's an Austrian newspaper, it's a circulation of 11,000 copies, it appears 11 times a year. Um, it's, uh, from, it's published by an organization with very close ties to the Austrian Freedom Party, which is a right-wing party in Austria. Um, it was founded, it's a Rigsky right party, it was founded after the Second World War by the former Nazis who then had their own party. Um, and became famous at 
been famous as the party of Al-Qaeda in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and usually between 15 and 20 percent of the votes in Austria. Um, the authors of the other are from, there are members of the FPÖ, Freedom Party, right-wing there, for example, a member of the European Parliament, Andreas Mölzer. Um, other writers contributors are uh, Holocaust deniers, several of them took part in the, the Holocaust conference, which we heard yesterday from Professor Lipstein in Tehran. Nazi romantics, members of German national student fraternities, neo-Nazis, and so um, on. Um, um, when I thought about which case study I take, whether take the left, the right, the left, I defined several of the things I mentioned as well. But this one, I took this one because it's important that the Freedom Party, for example, used to be in the Austrian federal government from 2000 to 2007. So these are people who actually have political power. It's not some obscure sect or something. And there are people who have. Uh, and the federal government, for example. Um, the topics in the hour usually talks about the so-called Verbotsgesetz. It's a law that prohibits the little man to deny the Holocaust uh, and so on in Austria. They want to get rid of it, of course. Um, cultural decline of German Austrian culture, immigration, big problem for them, anti-feminism, homophobic issues, US rel is one of their main topics, uh, anti-Zionism. All these pictures I'm going to show are scans from the outlet, such as titled US Rep, and it's, this is Rami Manuel, who's a Jew in there, it's all of its people behind Obama or Jewish and so on. By the way, they always get his name wrong, they always say Emmanuel Ram instead of Gabriel Ram. And what they really like to do is to, um, because it's kind of an uncovering of people don't know that, because they always pay the second name of the speech, so much to Ram, Israel, Emmanuel. So it's clear to everyone that he's a Jew, so they always pay who nobody dares to say that we do it. Um, there are several issues within the hour that deal with anti-Semitism. Um, among them is uh, the so-called witch hunt of uh, Holocaust denying Bishop Williamson of the St. Pius fraternity, just, uh, just a short example. Then the belittlement of Holocaust, this is called the Amulet Holocaust, which means the other Holocaust, and what they mean is the uh, Allied bombing attacks on Germany, that this was the real Holocaust and what happened to the Jews. Um, the Israel lobby, a big issue, and then of course Israel and anti-Zionism are very important here. I guess soldiers in, in Nazi uniforms. Um, but nevertheless, I'm only going to focus on anti-Semitism in, in uh, uh, connection with uh, the economic crisis. So there could be various things, but I will only focus on the economic things. Oh, I'm not done yet, excuse me. Of course, homophobia, big issue, thing. Then international relations is always something concerning Israel, something usually, for example, it says Hungary is the colony of Israel. And um, Hugo Chavez, although of course a left British, a big supporter of him because of his connections with uh, his Iran, who they also support his, uh, the Iran lie, the lies that they are building a nuclear bomb and a data threat to Israel and so on. So these are and dealing with international topics. Um, the other is a good example for this fetishized understanding of economy, and you can really see this in their coverage. It's always projection and personalization of abstract social relations onto various persons or groups of persons. Um, so in this, uh, they always have these people in the background who, of course, act for the Jews. It's not the Jews themselves. Remember, it was stones that they need a carrier. 
So in the, in, in the, in the language of uh, the Aula, this is then uh, is a cartoon again from the Aula. Um, the globalists and their accomplices, worldwide oligarchic structures, jumping jacks of big money, as is well known in the US, politics being made behind the scenes, elites, dubious circles, high finance and various lobbies, APEC, are the financial backers and true rulers, or the architects of the financial Shoah, who slept Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Lehman Brothers, Maryland, JIT, and Washington Mutual into the credit crematoria. So this is a very disgusting quote again, and like comparing, of course, the economic crisis to Holocaust and um, yeah, the architects, the Jews, that did themselves, yeah, so it's all combined. Um, there are always, of course, this inaccurate accusation, and it is, of course, part of this conspiratorial logic. Yeah? And it's not, not really, even, even those experts can't really see through it. It's very opaque and dubious, and it's, of course, part of this conspiratorial logic. They're all acting in the background, you never really see them. And again, a quote from Rousseau This power does not usually appear as such, but must find a concrete vessel, a carrier of all of expression. It stands behind the phenomena, but it's not identical with them. Its source is therefore hidden, conspiratorial. You see, it's very good that this happens in the outer. Um, what they really like to do then again, and which is part of their understanding, is a personalization. This usually happens to Ben Bernanke. Who is also again his second name Shalom, so again this uh, so it has five zero for the Jews because they five people in the board of the Fed or something. Um, and Adam Greenspan is the second one they like to focus on. It says like uh, Adam Greenspan responsible for a system of power and money. That's a cover of yeah. um, the other thing is the biologization of capitalism. Um, this happens in in uh, terms such as, for example, the mean of global neoliberalism, financial investors as locusts coming and destroying everything. Um, talking about predated capitalism, you see it's big fat men, supposed to be capitalism, and the ordinary people are trying to keep it down. Talking about a hydra, or uh, discarding banks and stripping wolves. Um, this, of course, is always at the core that there is something as a, as a natural, sane organism that just has to be cleaned with its various parts. And reminds everyone, I guess, on, on anti-Semitic images to know parasitic Jews living among all the others and so on. So this is the, what happens when you biologize and things. Um, what they really focus on is that interest um, is the main problem of capitalistic society. So they, um, they think that this is a very unnatural growth. It just keeps on growing and growing. It just doesn't really happen in nature. And um, so the they really want to get rid of interest as such. Um, what they do is, there is a German uh, a economist theory who lived uh, in the beginning of the century called Silvio Gesell. Um, he became quite famous for his natural economic order. It's called the Natürliche Wirtschaftsordnung, which he says that the Red power interest is the problem of capitalism. We have to get rid of the interest. And his solution to this was um, well, the parasitic money owners who don't have to work for their income and so on, it's all very, yeah. And, uh, and the solution to this problem is free money, I get, um, which is money which has an expiring date. After every month, it loses, it, loses, it loses a certain percentage of money, so it can't be hoarded. It has to be, because if you hoard it, you just lose money. No interest, so it has to be kept in circulation. Um, the author of the hours always uh, often uh, go back to this natural economic order as an alternative the actual capitalistic system we have right now. Um, 
the, this natural economic order is still discussed even in academic circles sometimes and is now by some groups trying uh, to be brought into left organizations such as ATTACK and ATTACK Germany there are two, at least two organizations um, who, are, uh, uh, who want to uh, promote these ideas within the left uh, discourse and as a solution to economic crisis and so on. Um, but we sometimes in the other as well as Islamic banking is also a kind of solution because they also have this in, no, no interest thing, of course, it's really but yeah, it's sometimes also considered as a solution. Um, I'm not going into Gisad very especially, I'm just dealing with um, uh, sorry, um, his connections to anti Semitic abbreviated critique of capitalism. I'm only focus on this one. Um, the first one is the valorization of capitalism. You said already always talked about this same body economy and that we only have to make some kind of adjustments, cut out this cancer of interest um, to get up the same body again. Um, that's about unnatural growth, exponential growth, that there isn't something as exponential growth in nature and is therefore get rid of it. Um, there's an interest is cancer. Yeah. The other thing is that it's a superficial understanding of capitalism. It's only deals on one branch of the whole capitalistic production. It's only interest, nothing else. Um, and this is a very good example for the conformist rebellion that I already mentioned at the beginning. It's not really going to the root, there is no big problem. It just keeps on a superficial level, attacks it, and what, when you remember the quote from Adorno in the beginning, maybe extreme, but not radical. So it's a perfect example for this. And I, mean, I don't want to say that all of the people who like Gisad or Manita um, are all anti-Semites, but it is a structurally anti-Semitic theory that always leads to anti-Semitic consequences as of these valorizations and abbreviations they always make. Um, oh, well, not, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Soon. Uh, Um, so, what I'm trying to say is that um, this conformist rebellion it gives itself a, a, a revolutionary standing, but it is in fact not, and that's exactly the problem. This was Karl Marx once described as being, quote, within the limits of what is permitted by the police, but not permitted by logic. So, it is really this conformist rebellion, and you don't really attack people in charge, but you attack one part of the society, usually the Jews, but it's not a radical rethinking of this whole process. Um, when, and to end this, when Adorno and Horkheimer state in the very end of Dialectics of Enlightenment that, quote, um, it, is not just it is not just the anti-Semitic ticket which is anti-Semitic, but the ticket mentality itself. This is also true for critique of capitalism, for critique of capitalism. Not just a shortened and explicit anti-Semitic uh, critique of capitalism is anti-Semitic, but this shortened critique as such. Thank you. Okay, um, we've heard a lot about uh, Islam, Islamist uh, anti-Semitism uh, during the conference. Um, my paper focuses uh, rather on the on genuine anti-Semitism in Western societies, as it still is persisting. We can say that um, after the defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945, 
we can observe a rising efforts of the Western mind to fight organized anti-Semitism in Germany and other traditionally strong anti-Semitic nations in Europe. Um, we can even say that an official state policy opposing anti-Semitic tendencies became the indicator for democratic conditions and the establishment within the international political system. Um, therefore, publicly outspoken anti-Semitism was more and more prosecuted, both formally and informally, while it remained existent on a private level. Uh, this fact uh, was already mentioned by Franz Böhm in 1955, and is called communication latency by Werner Bergmann and Rainer Herb. Um, this communication latency is accompanied, as we heard, by the rise of socially more accepted forms of resentment, such as secondary anti-Semitism, especially in Germany, and anti-Zionism. We place the word Jew with Israeli, and everything's fine, you can say whatever you want. So we get the impression in the last decades, genuine anti-Semitism in Western countries was hardly a thing to worry about besides from some right-wing fractions. This at least is the message even some scholars of anti-Semitism seem to support. The problem with this um, finding is that neither of those scholars has a reliable way to estimate the extent of anti-Semitism in Western societies today, since most people will hide their attitudes in those societies. The statements are based on data or surveys which presuppose every anti-Semite would not hesitate to tell us his to tell us what he thinks about Jews. Um, survey methodological works, however, have shown that individual individuals will answer in a socially desirable manner when it comes to sensitive issues. So my paper puts a very simple question. How can we reproduce the actual attitudes of interviewees, which is uh, very important for fighting anti-Semitism, um, when we can assume that interviewees are lying? And we can put it more technically and less ontologically, um, how can we improve the validity of our measurement instruments? Um, the first step towards the development of a better measurement instrument offers the same paper by Bergman and Erb. Um, and they say that anti-Semites articulate their attitudes in, as they call it, consensus groups, which consists of people that are perceived to hold the same attitudes in regard to Jews as the anti-Semitic individual herself. Um, and this implicit note on the influence of reference groups on the communication of publicly sanctioned attitudes such as anti-Semitism leads us the way to determine the relevant mechanism of the generation and communication of anti-Semitic attitudes. And especially the later the communication of anti-Semitic attitudes is of importance here. Um, there's an underlying assumption I want to make clear. Uh, we can distinguish a public norm against uh, anti-Semitism and this I define here as commonly shared expectation that anti-Semitism will be sanctioned both formally and informally if articulated in public situations. Um, 
We, on the other hand, we have the primary truth norm. And this is a shared expectation of a small, definable private group, uh, such as families and peer groups, of what happens when members of this group articulate anti-Semitic attitudes. Um, now, on the level of attitude generation, that is um, how the actual attitude of an individual develops, um, we can say that the uh, primary group is of more importance due to consideration of considerations of Leon Festinger's theory of, co of cognitive dissonance if individuals would hold attitudes that are not in accordance with the primary group norm, uh, cognitive dissonance would occur. On the more important case of attitude communication, however, I assume that the respective impact of the public and primary group norm is um, shaped by the definition of the situation. Um, in public situations, the anti-antisemitic expectations lead to the avoidance of anti-semitic statements, while in private situations, the respective primary norm is of relevance. Um, if now the primary norm and the public norm diverge, it can be assumed that a discrepancy between public and private situations occurs. Um, in public situations, individuals holding anti-Semitic attitudes of relevant degree won't communicate their attitudes straightforward, but will adjust their communicative behavior to the public norm. In private situations, however, the public norm loses its impact. If now we suppose uh, that interviews interpret surveys as public situations, we can observe a significant difference between the actual attitude and the communicated attitude. And to decrease this variance, we have to control the interpretation process of interviews. And for this purpose, we suggest, I suggest you, to activate the cognitions of the boundary norm. And I try to accomplish that in an experiment with the help of context effects. Context effects uh, is called the influence of previous questions on later questions. Um, so if we ask for the attitude of the primary group before the actual questions concerning the own attitude are asked, um, I suppose on the one hand that uh, the own opinion is adjusted while the primary group opinion, uh, with the primary group opinion, and on the other hand, that uh, anti-Semitism increases. The second hypothesis is of great importance because, uh, to put it easy, if we manage it that interviewee is framing the situation in a more private way, we have a more representative, uh, more representative polls, and we know that polls are an instrument to shut down uh, critique against anti-Semitism because uh, these voices uh, suppose that anti-Semitism is a thing of the past. So, I will now come to an empirical study to prove my point. Um, I asked um, 241 German students between age 14 and 18 and designed an experimental setting. One group 
where it was asked for the friend's attitude before the own attitude was asked. That's the treatment group. And the other group of interviewees was asked for the own opinion first. We have here the items of the questionnaire, which is not of too much interest, but rather a technical detail. Uh, same counts for the distribution here. I mean, I mentioned it anyways. We have 11% strong anti-Semitic um, individuals and 19 slight anti-Semitic individuals in this sample here. What is of interest um, is that our hypotheses are um, validated by this data. Hypothesis 1 is validated by an increase of the correlation um, if the attitudes of the friendship of the friends are asked uh, before the own attitude. And concerning hypothesis 2, we see, and this is a really interesting finding, it goes to the interesting finding, um, that we have an increase uh, of 0 0.7 points on a 1 to 6 scale. That means if you use this method in usual polls, you will have a much higher number of anti-Semites, of open, of genuine anti-Semites, as not of anti-Zionist uh, arguments, but anti-Semitism. Um, and we have further interesting findings that we can uh, derive from this data. We have three, I would say, state-of-the-art determinants of genuine anti-Semitism. Um, education, interest in politics, and right-wing attitudes. Um, but if indeed the start theoretical considerations and empirical data suggests that reported anti-Semitism increases once the interview is less reached to follow public norms, it is possible that these correlations um, have been overestimated. Um, to illustrate the point, um, let's discuss the influence, influence of education. Um, it's been proven in various studies, various empirical studies, that anti-Semitism is more common among poor educated than among well-educated. Um, now, what if this finding was mainly in the consciousness of better educated um, people that some things, such as should not be articulated in public, regardless of what one actually thinks about the matter. Um, in this case, better educated interviewees would lie more often about uh, their attitudes. The same idea comes for interviewees showing a remarkable interest in politics. Those might be simply more aware of the public norm and answer in line with public expectations. Further, I assume that political politically left interviewees have greater interest than right-wing interviewees who appear not anti-Semitic due to self-image concerns. And here you can see how a possible mechanism works if we see that left that the left is anti-Zionist but presumably not anti-Semitic. And the mechanism works about uh, social expectations. It's expected from left interviews to be anti-anti-Semitic, while it is not expected from them or probably the opposite is true that they are pro-Israel. So they 
live out their anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. That's my point here. Um, and the data I have at hand, I skipped the statistical magic here because I assume that uh, we are not uh, among social scientists, um, but rather among historians. Um, uh, what is important here is that these data, if you compare the influence, the statistical uh, rights that is explained of model one with model two, you can see exactly what I just um, um, was considering, that we have a substantial decrease of the influences of education, of interest in politics, and political attitudes. Um, my interpretation of that is that one's interviews with higher education, etc., frame the service situation in a more private way. The difference between them and more educated ones decreases. And the main influence is that of primary. I have to, um, have to underline that it this is not to say that no anti-Semitism among right-wing fractions exists, nor that is uh, as strong in left-wing left groups. Um, we can see from statistical data that there's still a higher probability that right-wing individuals were both anti-Semitic <coughs> But uh, my point is that this influence has been overestimated and that is at the time to look at um, genuine anti-Semitism among the left and we need the uh, the technical instruments, the uh, socio-theoretical and methodological instruments to find out about this genuine anti-Semitism among well-educated ones and among the left. Um, I will conclude that such an enhanced measurement of anti-Semitism does not only offer a more reliable picture about the extent and hence the consequences of anti-Semitism today, but it also helps us to determine what triggers anti-Semitic attitudes. In this regard, it might be, not be very surprising that primary groups have that much of an influence on anti-Semitic attitudes, but it seems at least counterintuitive to some that it's not merely a favorite toy of educated Nazis, which it is nonetheless. If quantitative anti-Semitism research does not take the normative character of anti-Semitism into account, it chronically underestimates the extent of it and overestimates the correlations with some state of determinants. And since it is this branch of anti-Semitism research that makes it frequently in the news, we have to be very careful with our findings. And this small study here should be a first step to elaborate a more uh, uh, quantitative, reliable research instrument. And it also can help us, like I said, to uh, define and find out more about genuine anti-Semitism and detour uh, communications such as secondary anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism.
Thank you. He noticed 
that one cannot be an anti-Semite without further intellectual principles and describes elements of a specific way of interpreting social processes and structures of what I would say modern capitalist societies. In particular, he mentioned a specific interpretation of the nation, but also ownership structures, exploitation, money, etc. Adorn and Horkheimer, but in particular later Moshe Stone, asked about the relation between a specific fetishized perception of modern capitalist society and anti-Semitism. They stated that based on a fetishism of capitalist structures, anti-Semites relate an as bad perceived artificial abstract sphere like banks, stock market, the concept of the individual, intellect, money, etc. to the Jews, opposed to a concrete sphere like concrete work, factories, and so on, which is perceived as good and organic and related to the nation people folk, to use the German term, which is meant not to be Jewish. In these anti-Semitic projections, Jews are the non-workers, exploiters, intellectual bankers, stockbrokers, contrasting with the national community, the real workers, and honestly producing industrials. And the Nazi ideology, this culminated in the obvious sign over the gates of the labor for, uh, forced labor concentration and extermination camp, Auschwitz. There was written Arbeit macht frei. Liberate translated, work will make you free or work liberates. Nation as a form of ideology and anti-Semitism. I want to highlight that the concept of the nation plays a tremendous role in modern anti-Semitism, which I believe I'm not the only person. And even if traditional and religious elements take part in a transformed form in modern anti-Semitism, modern anti-Semitism is related to modernity and the current form of social organization of this very society, namely the modern capitalist society. We are living in a society in which the political regulation and construction of identity is built up, among others, by competing nation-states. Even if there are transnational dimensions of regulation, the main player are still nation-states competing with each other. And two predominant rationales for inclusion and exclusion of individuals into and from the nation-state can be found. And these are those ideological rationales to legitimate the rights of a citizen the existence of a state and the extension of the state territory. I will, you will see later in the speech that these three points, rights of a citizen, existence of a state and extension of the state territory, plays a role either in modern anti-Semitism and also in anti-Zionism. Two hegemonic nation concepts can be distinguished, especially talking about Europe, but also a little bit about the US, and um, also in newer nation states as uh, in Arab countries or in Latin America. Firstly, a Republican concept based on the rationale that all individuals living at one territory are members of the nation and therefore receive citizen rights. 
Secondly, a primordial concept based on gene uh, genealogies, either Feldish, the German term, ethnic, cultural, or religious. Those two models are the two hegemonic uh, models and are, I would say, especially in Europe societies, but not limited to those. Unfortunately, I can't focus on other societies, as in Arab countries, and the complex situation of colonial, post-colonial, nation-building, and the competing ideologies of nationalism, Arabism, and Islamism in the Muslim world. It is important to mention that in the hegemonic perception, you can only be uh, or have one real nationality, one person, one nation. And in face of competing nation states, you have to serve in the interest of your nation only. Both concepts, the republican and the primordial one, have their specific impact on the perception of Jews and Israel. Talking about Jews, citizenship, and loyalty to the nation. Consider from a Republican perspective the situation of the Jews in the 19th century. Those who supported the political emancipation of Jews, regardless of their religion and culture, often did not like that Jews still believed in their Jewish religion. Religious Jews were perceived as doctorate, so the price or expectation for the right of political emancipation was assimilation. And if the Jews assimilated but claimed to be still Jewish or part of a Jewish nation, it contradicted the loyalty of the nation concept. One nation for each citizen. Let's have a look on the second concept, the primordial one. Three rationales can be distinguished. Religion, culture, and folk. Religion. If the rationale of nation was based on religion, it was Christian. If the concept was based on culture, it often implicitly signified a secularized Christianity which did not include any explicit Jewish heritage. If the concept was based on folk, German term, this included a, a genealogy of blood, and the Jews could not take part of the nation. Within the frame of these concepts, especially assimilated Jews were suspected to distract the nation from inside the nation. Let's see what happens with Israel. Israel nation territory. When we have a look on Israel and its perception through the lens of the primordial and republican rationales of nation become can serve some interesting points. It starts with the traditional anti-Jewish concept, the primordial one, especially the ethnic one. This concept can be found among either self-identified right-wingers, but also among left-wingers. What constitutes a nation in this perspective? By this concept, a nation is constituted through genealogy, which I already mentioned, ethnic, cultural, or religious. Some consider Jews as a nation, but most do not because they are perceived as a mixed race, as guests among the war nations. And the fathers and mothers of the Jews do not have the same blood. 
But even if the Jews are considered a nation, the nation concept relates population and territory in a specific form. By this concept, a nation is constituted through, as through any form of genealogy of the population living forever in a common territory, the concept of the autochthonous. From this perspective, Jews are not allowed to live in Palestine as a nation, since from this perspective, the so-called and recently invented Palestinians as a nation are those who live there forever. The autochthonous Palestinians have the right to live in Palestine. Israel is in this perception an artificial construct which has to disappear. Related to this concept are such expressions as Israel as cancer and so on. In this primordial concept, there is no space for the Jews, neither as guests among autochthonous in Europe or other countries, nor in Palestine. Let's focus now on the liberal or leftist concept, the republican concept and its position toward Israel. Following the republican concept, a primordial concept is against universalistic principles. Different concept can be found in this perspective, which at the end of the day all serve politics against Israel as a Jewish state. Firstly, there is the concept among some leftists, especially radical left, that every nation state has to disappear, a post-national perspective. Mostly the focus is put on Israel as Israel is one of the most recent states and the deconstruction of nation states from this perspective, should be started with the newest one, Israel, and the Jews should be or live in countries where they are from. But also the concept of a one-state solution, a common Jewish-Palestinian state, means the destruction of the Jewish state. Also a two-state solution with equal rights for Palestinians and Jews in Israel would cause problems, considering the demographic evolution even if we don't consider any right of return of the so-called refugees, Palestinian refugees. But what is emphasized most in this perspective is the fact that Israel considers itself as a Jewish state. Ethnic or religion, uh, religious, even definitions, remind the Europeans of their history. Whether it is the religious definition stemming from feudalism or the ethnic one prevalent in modern capitalist societies, culminating in national, the strong nationalism and wild national socialism. Both definitions have been partly overcome in Europe, kind of, kind of, and should be overcome in general from this progressive perspective. In this perspective, a nation state with a definition of citizenship by ethnic or religious genealogy has to be fought. So, to fight against Israel as a Jewish state. So, those who fought for the political emancipation and equal rights for Jews, regardless of ethnic, religious, or cultural genealogies in Europe, nowadays those also who speaking out of Israel are strong enemies of the Jewish state. Such a kind of universalistic perspective becomes nowadays a rationale to fight the Jewish state and 
its existence. The system of competing nation states and their hegemonic concept does not include a Jewish state, which can serve as a state for all potentially persecuted Jews, if you take it from this definition, or a Jewish state for the Jews. Let's speak about Israel, Jews in the diaspora and disloyalties. I want to mention the relation of the system of competing nations, nation states and the perception of Jews not living in Israel. From the point of view that every citizen is part of one nation and has to serve the interests of its nation or nation state, every Jew is perceived as potentially disloyal towards the state, state where he or she is living. The general suspicion of the disloyalty of Jews becomes worse when it comes to Israel. In a society based on competing nation states, every Jew is potentially accused to be more loyal towards Israel than to his or her nation states. Let's talk very briefly about the second aspect I mentioned in the introduction of modern capitalist societies, the impersonal functioning perception of processes and structures. How is the functioning perceived and what relation exists to anti-Semitism? Contrary to feudalism in capitalist society, the production of wealth, exploitation and so on is not effected through personal dominance. No individual is physically owned by another. Every individual has to sell its labor force on the market if this person does not have property for every labor production. The employer does not own the employee. The modern society is based on contracts between two independent and equal individuals. The employer contracts the employee. The employee is free to choose the employer. The employee produces wealth for the employer and the employee is paid to pay his everyday reproduction. If the employee doesn't receive enough money for his or her everyday reproduction, there is no direct responsible. He or she could choose. Especially during crisis when employees earn less and or employers cannot accumulate money and or the state fails in regulation a responsible is being searched. And the common perception, as it was already mentioned before, the banks, the stock, shareholders, multinational companies, politicians are blamed to be responsible. People are searching for culprits and are personalizing the responsibility of their personal capitalist society. Here's the point where the system of competing nation-states plays a central role. When the political regulation of the nation-state is not able to guarantee the wealth and the reproduction of its population, foreign sources, traitors, stockholders, banks, politicians are being blamed. The cosmopolitan Jews, which are everywhere, which have no fatherland and are perceived as part of the nation, are than those who are blamed for the misery and all the social processes which are perceived as bad. 
This specific connection of the perception of the impersonal functioning of capitalism and the system of competing nation-states culminates in blaming the Jews for a global conspiracy. To conclude, the Jews are perceived as personalized actors against the nations, whether inside our nations and sometimes against the Palestinians. If the Jews are those who contradict the nation-states or the system of competing nation-states by systems, and are those who are culprits for the bad, there is only one possibility to deal with it. This is why anti-Semitism, in my opinion, is the most dangerous ideology in our existent society. Thank you. Um, yeah, 
a little bit afraid about the answers because I don't have any. <laughs> um, not really. One thing is, um, I would strongly advocate for a kind of US model of citizenship, which is not as in comparison to the European model based on so much narratives or not at least in, in this uh, excluding form. So this is one change I made in the last years, um, beginning from criticizing the US for a lot of uh, stuff to defend the US model of not really nation state in the European sense. So th this, that's one point. The other point is, um, I think what, what I spoke about is uh, the relation between anti-Semitism and the expectation in the state. What the state uh, shall do from the perspective of the anti-Semites or a lot of Britain. Because I would say in Europe is a tendency that uh, every request for regulation by the state goes to a direction which is more fascist direction. I did interviews, especially in Germany, um, with persons questioning uh, their perspective about differencing. And there's a strong relation between those who advocate for a social state and those who want an authoritarian state. So what's that? Authoritarian state, let's say a kind of fascist And so what I'm a little bit afraid of to, I, I can't give any answers because if you want, uh, if you if you got a perspective um, like me that in this capitalist society there is a lot of shit going on and that it should be overcome, I don't have any answer. How? And what what kind of uh, society it could be, um, or what kind of transitional process could take part um, without getting in the direction of a Stalinization or a authoritarian fascist state or whatever, uh, coming backwards to more organic entities. We either produce, um, well, if we're doing anti-capitalist critique. Kind of enhancing the problem, or um, well, we can't really abolish the whole thing right now. But I think what what's about in, in this kind of economy is um, obviously there's people that are not anti-Semitic right now already. So it's always a question of ideology as well, or a question of psychological dispositions. So that might be a point one can start working on right now. Um, you know, change people's ways of thinking ways to look at stuff, so that would be the first step for any revolution, I think, too, so um, obviously we can do something, that's what I'm Well, I mean, I can respond to that, we can talk to each other, right? I mean, uh, um, in that case, though, so then if you can fight anti-Semitism without taking down the entire, you know, capitalist system, then Okay, we can set aside the, you know, the entire critique, right? So that if you have some depends upon lots of other things, which I would, of course, you know, agree with, then it's not so much, in, in a sense, what happens to their analysis. I think, in particular, Nicholas's analysis then becomes, well, I mean, what's left of the whole, you know, um, 
fetishization, occupation, and so on that the Jews kind of, you know, which, by the way, I agree with to, to a great extent. I'll even take a label where I kind of make a sort of parallel argument only from sort of the pro market side, I guess, you know, really you know, simply. Uh, but uh, if you can find anti Semitism without, you know, then you add at the end, okay, that would be the first step. Okay, we have tried maybe. Obviously, um, there is there is differences. Not everybody. It's not as multi-possible uh, as it seems with this kind of critique, which doesn't make it a default. Because um, I, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, there are other problems with the critique, but but, uh, um, but, it, it, uh, but it certainly makes the critique less necessary. I mean, in fact, I sense as these other causes could be fought on other grounds and with other means and so on. Okay, just a short statement. I think that, of course, you're right. It doesn't seem that we're going to live in the, the free association, the free individual society for the club, and the international socialist It's not going to happen today or tomorrow. Of course, there is this question, so what can we do about it? But I think it's important to have the perspective in mind, at least, that there is a possibility. And then you can do a daily political work and directing it to this idea that it could be possible to change. This also means to, to political problems we're facing right now. And um, so, yeah, it's because it's difficult, but I mean, it's a fetishized understanding. So what you can do is to, 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 to show these roots of the problem, to make it obvious, and then make it do something as education. <coughs> it's hard to say. I mean, I think this is a better way to show its roots than some intercultural dialogue or something, yeah, where you, the Palestinian kids and Jewish kids meet and they paint together or something. I think it's really more important to really show these social structures that make it possible. And then, yeah, maybe, I don't know, my implications. It always seems a bit naive because it seems so much anti-Semitism and so hard to fight, but, yeah, um, I mean, you have to keep in mind, it can get worse than the capitalistic society. We know that since we see Nazi Germany, yeah. So it's not anything that changes is bad. That's why I want to make the point of radical and not extreme. So we have to keep in mind it can get worse with authoritarian states, fascist, socialist states. So we have to keep that in mind as well. But, okay. well I, I would add something to that. Um, if we, it depends on consideration how close you link capitalism and anti-Semitism. And the reason that <clears throat> anti-Semitism did grow out of uh, capitalism in the 19th century or a crisis of capitalism and uh, a Marxian analysis uh, was established by people like Tostow and Moklausen. Uh, the point was to, I think, to say we have a better analysis of the anti-Semites of capitalism than uh, the anti-Semites do. And if we have this analysis, um, we can even fight anti-Semitism within capitalism. I'm not going to talk, but I want to ask a couple of questions. Yeah. I, I, I can give you a, the example that I know, okay, that, is, that is my country, which is Venezuela. We we are we were I thought we were a capitalist society, okay, until this new government came in 11 years ago. But also on that society that we were living, okay, for some 
incredible reason, there was never anti-Semitism. Never. Like, for example, a case uh, of anti-Semitism would come up every five years. That was it. You know, somebody would paint a swastika, whatever. It was like a, uh, like a Disneyland state for the Jews or for anybody else. It was a very uh, easy society to live in. Everybody integrated. There was really no problem. I mean, if, if somebody, if Chinese would come in, they would call them, hey, Chinese, you are hey, you call, hey, Jew, whatever. And it didn't mean anything. Italians, you know, the whole, the, whole, the whole thing was just, I mean, the, the Portuguese would call Portus, and they all own the, the, the coffee shops or the, or the, or the, or the bakeries, whatever. And there was, there was never any animosity in, in, into that. Finally, when this government comes into power, it, it, it portraying itself, opposing as a socialist, a revolution where, where, where we're going to uh, substitute this capitalist state for this new socialism of the 21st century, uh, all of a sudden anti-Semitism appears. It's supposed to not only not appear, but it's supposed to disappear if it ever existed, you know, because this was a egalitarian society, whatever, but it, it, it happened exactly the opposite. I mean, it decided that the way to destroy the capital society that existed before, he had to find a scapegoat. He had to find somebody who was guilty. But not guilty for the first year, second year, but forever. Because uh, uh, so they, they found that the Jews, Israel, Zionism was a very easy thing to latch onto it and simply Everything that was, uh, everything happens to go, be wrong in Venezuela right now is because of the Zionists and the Mossad. So, I mean, that is, so we are substituting for socialism, okay? But what kind of socialism is that where it actually uses the exclusion and, 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 and the anti-Semitism card uh, to actually uh, put himself into power? So it's like a, I don't know if you, if your theory would, would work. You know, if you say, let's do the same in the United States. Let's convert this into a socialist society here. Maybe the things will happen. But, but I think this, this it's not a contradiction to the, the, what I said. It's, it's more um, that I would say the Venezuela is in the system of competing nation states. It's not, there's not a world socialist society. So, or in, I wouldn't say they are socialists or whatever, but that's, that's not a question. I would say Venezuela is also a Puritan uh, anti-Semitic state nowadays, and that in in and Venezuela is not the only case. You can also have a world um, transition processes in the Arab world or other countries. And so, my opinion, uh, what is happening in Venezuela is there is still a form of capitalist reproduction, the, you have to sell your labor force and so on. And the only model which would be possible in Venezuela is even worse, I would say, that everything is owned by the state and everything is related to the state. So that the individuals disappear. The, the concept of the individual is related until now to a form of um, organization of the society. So I, I would say there is a there is a relation between 
that I have to sell my labor force, that I have to reproduce myself by my own and so on to the concept of the individual. So it's, it's not totally separated. And if there would be a change, or if there's a change as in Venezuela, the concept of the individual disappears and there are two possibilities. Those who fight against the state, taking over everything in the form of production, and those who are with the states, and they will be the, the anti-Semites, or are the anti-Semites. So for me, it's in this um, international system of competing nation-states, mostly based on capitalist production forms, uh, where Venezuela takes part. And that's for me the, the, the dangerous, uh, yeah, dangerous um, perspective, because this could happen also in other countries. But I think it's related to this what I said. It's not like there's capitalism and socialism and with socialism begins the problem. No, I, 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 it depends no, on. No, I, I understand. I didn't yeah. mean it exactly yeah. that way. Okay. I, mean, I mean, if somebody knows about socialism, at least in Venezuela, it's me. I mean, I was, I was founder of a kibbutz mm -hmm. in, in the 60s. I mean, where a kibbutz was actually a kibbutz, not that it's now a, 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 a capitalist production. I mean, over there, it was actually direct democracy. I mean, among the people in the kibbutz. But w when you try to apply that to a, to a higher society, I mean, it, for some reason, it doesn't seem to work. You know, because you can't put everybody uh, over there. We're 40 people in the 60s, and we all got together and we, we decided on everything we wanted, including what we're going to eat next week. Okay. But how do you do that with a with a country? Okay. So if you replace the individual by the common good. Okay, then you end up with no individual. Oh, did, you, did you want to speak to that? No. Um, I, I, when I, this whole week I've had like three favorite presentations. Like your presentation to me was the most scary presentation, and the, the feminist one was the most inspiring one. And I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. Echo? Heiko. Heiko. I think your presentation was the most use, potentially the most useful. I mean, it, it was astonishing to me that this, because one of my big questions has been, who are the anti-Semites? And we use these, these languages, well, it's the left. Well, that's sloppy. It's not, we're all the left. Are we anti-Semites? So it's not the left. It's the Islamists. Well, millions of people in the Islamic world who are radical Islamists. Hate Jews. So it's not just that radical Islamists or live for that. And I, I feel like you, your research is speaking to how do we really find out? And this principle, if I understand it, which is, I don't know how to put it in a simple sentence, but the idea if there becomes an accepted discourse that it's okay to be anti Semitic, then that true feeling that is many people will come out. And but if it's not an accepted discourse, then it won't come out. I mean, I find that as a person who, who fights against anti-Semitism potentially really useful. I'm not sure yet exactly how, but as you know, I haven't digested it or anything, but I think it and I think it may apply to what you're saying, which is Chavez made the public discourse accept this anti-Semitism. So he's saying they're like asking him, well, what do your friends think 
about anti-Semitism. And Chavez is saying, well, all us Venezuelans know the Jews are the enemy. So now it's okay for everybody to know. I mean, I just think your papers potentially can be extremely useful. I agree. So thank you. I agree. And even though there's a few of us here, this is all going to be online. So it'll be accessible. You know, I think. Thank you. Well, we have plenty of time. I want to talk with you as well. We have one, one thing that, that, that I, well, I mean, one, one point that I want to tell you about on the table, actually, that I didn't want to lose. Uh, I find what I was saying before was, I mean, I think that, that um, the, kind of the level that situated Israel within, in terms of these competing notions of the nation state, I think that is, is very insightful. I think that that's a really productive way to start to talk about why Israel gets targeted from, you know, from, from every side. Like, <coughs> right, it doesn't quite fit you know, a primordial notion of the state. It doesn't quite fit a Republican notion of the state. So someone who kind of adheres you know, very strictly to either of those conceptions finds Israel to be an anomaly, right? And you always want to get rid of anomalies, right? Because they, they kind of ruin the, you know, the system that you're trying to construct. Um, and I think that's, you know, um, that also kind of complicates the question of anti-Semitism because it's a real dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. that, that Israel doesn't have, really, it doesn't define itself, it doesn't have a way to define itself that exactly conforms mm -hmm. to the other ways in which nations and, and, and states are defined throughout the world. And, and I mean, my own approach to that has been um, to say that you, you have to make a kind of argument for sort of Israeli exceptionalism. And there's no way out of it, that's very difficult argument. Because it doesn't, again, obviously by definition, it doesn't fit into any system of justification or legitimation of the state. So that's, you know, um, so I, mean, that, that, that I think is something worth talking about as well. And one thing I want to say about um, saving Heidel's paper is, is um, you said something very, I mean, you used a very interesting term uh, a couple of times. You said genuine anti Semitism, and you kind of contrasted that with. Uh, I took to be implicitly with the kind of anti-Semitism that's being talked about a lot in, in the comments, whether it's uh, Islamist anti-Semitism or whether it's anti-Zionism and so on. And, and I, I think I know what you mean. I think that uh, based on, on, on your discussion, what you, what you were getting at was uh, an anti-Semitism that is sort of grounded in you know, personal attitudes and, and, as you're saying, primary group relations, right? More, I guess you could say, authentic. Right, or spontaneous anti-Semitism. Uh, but then again, it seems to me that, that I mean, what, what you're talking about is actually very different from that because what, what, what it sounds to me, I actually, I didn't get to hear your talk yesterday, so based on what you just said now, um, what you seem to me to be describing is a much more politically motivated anti-Semitism, where anti-Semitism bases itself not on Again, it's kind of spontaneous anti-Semitism that's already sort of out there, like ready to be exploited. But more anti-Semitism, which I think is more the kind of, that we see today, in a, in a lot of cases at least, more anti-Semitism that comes in explicitly as an explanation, right? And that you accept more as an explanation. Can you something that, that, that how you're going to buy the explanation? You have the potential to buy the explanation. That that might be, and that might be another kind of study yeah. to, to pick up in that case. But, but I don't think they will always. I mean, you have, um, if you look at it historically, you, it's, uh, it's really obvious that anti-Semitism after 1945 
couldn't, appear, uh, couldn't disappear right away. It had to remain somewhere. And my point is that it still is at this uh, location. And we have to figure out how to dig for this location. Is, some people say it's uh, later in mines. And I would suppose it's more, it's still, it's even more latent in, in digital. So people actually speak about Jews and what they think about Jews in private. And they are aware of their attitudes toward Jews, but they're just maybe not yet uh, allowed to speak about it in public. Like I said, um, and I mean, the points made throughout the conference a lot of time, if you uh, interchange the word Jew with Israeli, um, you can say whatever you want. And, but I mean, this, this discourse has to come from, some, from somewhere. There must be some um, mental uh, location and um, where it remains. And I think it's a, the, that's the, the task uh, force for social science to find out about the location. Maybe may I ask? Um, there is like an, um, when I when I my presentation I call capitalism, so I don't think that's the only reason for anti-Semitism. Yeah, there are different things. Psychoanalysis is a thing. One of the things we also need to uh, explain this phenomenon. Uh, the name of Hyde's presentation, uh, but there are no longer any anti-Semites. It's actually a quote from the Dialectic of Enlightenment from Horkheimer from the very last thesis, which was added after the war. The first edition was published in 1944, and I think the last thesis was 1947, something like that. And of course, there were not, I mean, it's a, there are no longer any anti-Semites. It's not, but they, you know, the, yeah, the, this, the public discourse was taboo. There was no anti-Semitism anymore, so I'm from Austria, it's quite similar to German. So, um, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, but it's not on, on the top level. Yeah? So that's a thing that you try to get out. Nobody says, yeah, I'm here and I'm an anti-Semite. Secondary anti-Semitism and all these things, and anti-Zionism as the one main wall of all these uh, prevented energies that are waiting here and there. Psychoanalysis helps for these things to analyze and try to how to make them. I mean, that's the difficult thing that even quite an empirical analysis, how you make it visible, how to make people talk. I'm, I'm a little disturbed at this uh, definition. I think it's true that uh, once it, uh, uh, an action becomes accepted, uh, then then it's all right. Okay. I mean, I, I was a witness in 1989 to widespread rioting and looting in Caracas. I mean, I was there. Actually, I was out on the street, and basically something like 80 percent of the stores were looted. And, and all of a sudden, see, like the first hour was only a few focuses of, of, of looting. And then it started like a, like a cancer, it started to grow. And all of a sudden, everybody, my neighbors, I mean, we said, I said, where are you going with the pickup truck? I said, I'm going to looting. <laughs> what are you talking about? What is, everybody's doing it. So, so I said, wow, I mean, I mean, this is really disturbing. And, and here it comes, almost the, the same description, you know. I mean, if it becomes accepted in society, then it'll be okay. Then what we're actually looking at, if, if you try to extrapolate what you say, is that we're looking at a coming holocaust.
Because if it's okay to go after the Jews, because now they became an acceptable target, then it'd be okay to kill them eventually. Would that be true? I mean, so I, okay. yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't draw these... Uh, <laughs> it's a little extreme. Yeah. I mean, you can, uh, you can apply the, what you said to Iran. Uh, a lot of the population in, in Germany won't support a military action against Iran because they hold unfavorable views of Israelis and because they don't take the, the danger for Israel uh, seriously. Because of these uh, underlying anti-Semitism, I wouldn't say that uh, we, can, we can observe and or we will observe and, uh, I mean, a pogrom or something in the future in Germany. I wouldn't uh, suppose that, but um, it's coming to today in different forms. Politics uh, work in that way that you um, you have a public opinion towards uh, one issue and then you can act as politicians. But but it could happen with Islamophobia also. I mean, this Islamophobia thing it 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 is it, ratcheting up in Europe, okay? And eventually, it may they the, the Muslims may become the targets of this of, of, of this new program. Chicken mentality or mass psychology. Right. So, but I think it's um, one thing is important, and I, I'm a little bit wondering myself why it's it's not a topic here at the conference. What what is it when we are talking about anti-Semitism? So, is it ideology? Is it act, or is it act by a state? So, for example, Daniel Goldhain uh, made the distinction, or when he asked why, why was the Holocaust possible, he said it was. Uh, state willing to execute it, supported by a population and international in an in a international situation where the state wasn't stopped. So these three dimensions of state, state extermination project. So if we are talking about anti-Semitism, I think it's mostly we are talking about here about ideology, not about Sometimes we are talking about anti-Semitic acts, for example, all the, all the investigation which the CSD in Great Britain is doing about anti-Semitic uh, assaults and so on. So, um, so we got a dimension of the acts, we got a dimension of the ideology, and we got a dimension of the state and the popular discourse. A little bit. So what Heike said, the relation between the public discourse or the hegemonic discourse and uh, let's say the private discourse, that's one dimension which is related to the state, the latter one, um, if it's publicly accepted, anti-Semitism, or supported. And if we have a look, for example, in, in, from, let's say, Germany, Spain, Morocco, these countries coming to Venezuela, Iran. So in Germany, there's a public discourse saying anti-Semitism is something bad, you shouldn't be an anti-Semite, the thing what happened uh, or what uh, went to Auschwitz. So it's this discourse. In Spain, for example, the, the word anti-Semitism is not known or it changed a little in the last five years. Um, you can't argue that this is anti-Semitism therefore it's bad. There's no such reference system as in Germany where you can say, okay, anti-Semitism, Holocaust, it's bad. So in Morocco, um, 
it's either different. There, the situation is that the uh, parts of the state um, supports anti-Semitism in the form of anti-Zionism, but defend the Jews, saying that kind of the Jews are also members of Morocco and so on, and we have a Jewish heritage and so on, um, and does not accept attacks against Jews. So it's, it's not a situation that it's allowed there. So, but what happens, for example, in Venezuela, I would say it's a little bit, it's more, kind of more dangerous because anti-Semitic acts are accepted by the state. So, and coming to Iran is um, also a different situation. So I think it's important to see the, the level of anti-Semitic acts, the uh, form where, where, which role the play state and where it can, can go to, to make this different, different uh, this differentiations. Um, I have a specific question. One statement you made uh, was Heiko, 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 was that uh, people with a politically left orientation have a greater investment in not being perceived as anti-Semitic and, and that they then uh, transfer or project that anti-Semitism onto anti-Israel. Can you say what evidence you have for that? I mean, you have um, the most recent um, example is the Gaza Flotilla. We had like um, three or four members of the left party in Germany among those. And these individuals will deny, they will uh, probably deny, or they will deny very much that they have anti-Semitic attitudes. They you can simply uh, shut them quiet politically if you say so that they do have as much um, anti-Semitic attitudes, but they will agree that they are anti-Zionists. Well, was there anything in your research that you heard she did? Could I add to this? I'll give you two examples. When you say that the Jews have no right for statehood, the only people that doesn't have a right for statehood is Jews. That's anti-Semitism besides anti-Zionism. When you say Israel has no right to exist because it has committed, let's say, a human rights violations, as if it is the only state in the world that has committed human rights violations. That's anti-Semitism besides anti-Zionism. When you say, as a, a, a British uh, intellectual, that Zionism is basically justification of Hitler. Because when you argue the Jews deserve a state, you actually justify Hitler, and therefore you have to be anti-Zionist because it's supposedly supporting Hitler. That's, in a sense, you are against the Jews, but you disguise it as anti-Zionism. Or when you um, deny the rights of Jews to defend themselves, uh, the only people, the only country in the world doesn't have the right to defend itself is Israel. Then it's, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, we missed this presentation, but yeah, we, I think we all can agree with what you just said. Because you're not going to get an argument here about that. But what was so special about this presentation? He had hard evidence in research groups that showed certain things about people's attitudes when the group was willing, when when they were asked what their friends thought. And they could say their friends were anti-Semites. Then, when they asked what they thought, they could admit to their 
So what I'm saying is in those, in that kind of research, where you had your you know, statistical information, did you have anything that would support this idea that you present that seems obvious that we all agree on? But was there anything in that evidence in your study that you could apply to that? Or is that need to get to be done? Because that would be very powerful to be able to not just have our opinions in a rational sense, but to have that kind of data. Yeah, I mentioned it as further step. That were my considerations uh, that you can find out uh, more about the relation between these uh, the two communications, such as uh, secondary antisemitism and antisemitism, and in relation to genuine antisemitism. And but in this study here, I didn't ask questions. So the next study would be instead of 14 to 18 year olds, would be to take leftists yeah. in groups and and have and create a create a study that would see what they said in those two different if their leftist leaders would come out like Chavez and say, all my friends are anti-Semites, and maybe that would change their well, resistance. I, I, I just want to make sure that Chavez is no left. I mean I mean it's mafia. <laughs> mafia is a different thing altogether, okay? Mafia is mafia. I'll tell that to even my friends in, in America who are on the left and love his ass. I would like to add a short brief comment. I did a qualitative study, um, also among German population, um, asking different things and we got different types of questions. So it was direct interviews about one hour, one and a half hour. And what, for me, it was really interesting form how you ask the question and there are the different responses. For example, if you ask them, what do you think why the, uh, the Jews have been um, such a bad experience during national socialism? The people will begin, the person will begin to rationalize anti-Semitism and all the prejudice come up. Or if you, if you ask the person, um, what uh, what do you think to which extent anti-Semitism still exists today? Or like uh, that they don't feel like individuals, like that they have to act in a, in a social situation in the interview against a different position. I think that the feeling of a consent or at least the possibility to consent with other person playing through that as well. So I totally agree with you. That's also my, my experience with, you know, we, had, we had a questionnaire of 40 questions and let's say 15 of them are about uh, yeah, Holocaust memory and so on, history, uh, the Jews, uh, Israel, Jews and uh, the US and so on. And there, it's, 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 it's very clear to see in which, uh, which discourses in, in Germany exist and um, what kind of, of answer is being seen as a constant answer, or not, not as opposing to the, the person who interviewed I think it's a very important question, this relation. Um, as my case study, the right-wing newspaper ads, that's, you can see the difference with there, nobody's afraid of being called anti-Semitic. So they are much straight, much more straightforward than you would see in other cases. <coughs> they don't have like this pressure or something of being in a group, and uh, it's just very. I mean, they know exactly what they may say, and they're not allowed to deny Holocaust last year. 
so they don't do it, but they get they know exactly how close they can get without staying in there. So they can really see a difference than from writing parties to parties or people and I just want to say really quickly, we have about two minutes. I mean, the question you asked what, what, you know, what are we calling it? And I think it's a very good one because, um, I mean, what, you know, what's been examined mostly in kind of group that we're in that line of science has been this kind of convergence of more traditional forms of anti-Semitism with now anti-Zionism and anti-Israelism and so on. And I agree with that, that all these things have, have, have converged, but I mean, that, that obviously wasn't always the case. And it's kind of a historical process. And, and I mean, if we go back, and some, someone who said to you know Herzl in you know 1898, you know you're crazy to want to get Jewish state. I mean, I guess that person would be anti-Zionist. I mean, they would be anti-Semitic, right? And it's obviously the way of Zionism has ended up, you know, getting intertwined with, with world politics in various ways that led to this intersection. I mean, for that matter. I'm pretty sure that most American Jews up through the 1930s were, were against Zionism. For various reasons. Maybe they thought it was a waste of time, they thought it wasn't going to work, they thought it would create problems you know, for them in, in, in you know, being the most loyal American citizens or whatever. I don't think they were anti Semitic either. Right? So these, you know, so, so these kind of positions sort of hardened and converged, I think, really over the last you know, maybe 30, 40, you know, 50 years. So um, I mean, I just wanted to say that because I think that you're right that kind of Lost when we're all we're all sort of converging ourselves on you know this phenomena that you know, everyone finds very so urgent today. Yeah. 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 Okay, so that's very nice.